chapter 3. This morning, the last chapter of Paul's letter to Titus brings us to the end of the pastoral letters. When we began this series, we started off by observing that our fallen reason thinks the most important thing in life is to be good, to do good, and to try hard. This led Brian Wolfmuller to say that when a person discovers then that they can do any of those things apart from Christianity, or when the central message of Christianity is how to be a good person, Christianity can be and will be very quickly discarded as not just unnecessary, but potentially oppressive. Because just as the healthy do not need a doctor, so the good do not need a Savior. Our Lord Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. This is the central fact of the whole gospel. And these three letters, First and Second Timothy and Titus, have been a case study in how the church, in its message, its structure, and its behavior, has been called to make that central fact known to every kind of person in every nation on the earth. All of Paul's instructions in these three letters amount to what has been entrusted to every church for all time and must be guarded for the sake of its preservation until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. The grace of Almighty God has appeared in the person of Jesus to save us and to train us how to live the lives that will make known His saving heart for all people. And here in this last chapter, Paul wanted Titus to remind the Christians in Crete how they should act since God had saved them by his mercy, insisting on the excellent and profitable message that all who believe are justified completely by God's grace is how we become and remain a fruitful people. So let's pray and we'll begin. Father, I thank you. For this moment in time that we have, it is precious, it is a gift. And so, Father, in this moment, for your name, for your glory, for your son, for your gospel, for the heart of everyone who will hear, would you please overcome and overwhelm all that I am, that I might preach your word. Please help me. Please be with me. I ask this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. We read the first three verses of Titus chapter 3. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Paul now turns his focus to our behavior as Christians in the world, towards those outside the church. He spoke of our behavior towards one another inside the church in 2, 2 through 10. And he's once again, by the way, speaking to everyone in the church. Christians are to be, first of all, submissive to rulers and authorities. Why? The New Testament says this a lot. Because God is the one who puts them in place. So submission to them is always a matter of submission to God. Christians can only become civilly disobedient 
when the mandate from the government is that we can no longer believe or proclaim the truth about Jesus Christ. That we must disobey. Until then, we submit. We submit, or we look like our hope is as much in the powers that be in the world as it is for the unbeliever. That compromises our message. And remember, when you read something like that, if that command was made under pagan, brutal Caesars in Rome, you can be sure it applies even more so in a nice constitutional republic like we have today. We are to be obedient. Everybody in here knows what that word means. It's pretty clear. And it's a strong command when you consider what obedience is. Obedience is obvious. It is without question. Again, until what we are told would mean disobeying God. We must always obey God rather than men. But until they tell us to disobey Him, disobeying them would be a matter of disobeying God. Paul stacks these commandments right on top of one another. They're just in quick succession. We are to be ready for every good work. That pertains in context most likely to good works as members of a worldly society. As part of a culture, things that help our communities, help our neighbors, all of these things. We are to live lives of order that allow us to serve others as part of a society. And here's a tall order for us now, given the current political climate, given the opportunity of social media. We are to, and I quote the Bible, speak evil of no one, avoid quarreling, be gentle, and show perfect Courtesy toward all people, no exceptions, none given in the text at all. Is there a more timely text for the church in America right now than this one? It's much easier to read the Bible when the commandments being broken are not ones we're breaking, isn't it? It's so easy to tee off on the immorality in society and in other people and completely bypass the abhorrent lack of obedience to the plainest commands given in the Bible in our own lives. So much easier to boycott what other people struggle with and to complain about it and gripe about it and malign it. As Cretans were apparently, we know from Titus, very difficult to convince of sound doctrine. So Americans are very hard to convince that their political rancor will draw no one to Jesus Christ. No one. Who you are voting for, what you think politically, will do nothing to draw anyone to Jesus Christ. Our involvement in political quarreling, which is constant, our willingness to get into it when it's filled with slander and meanness towards our opponents is related directly to our lack of belief in the sufficiency of Jesus in the gospel. We're just not making the connection. If we look as desperate for things to go our way politically, as those who have no hope in Christ do, we'll destroy our testimony without ever leaving our computer or our phone. Verse 2 is not hard to understand. It's just very hard to agree with. It's very hard to practice. And I am no exception. I don't mean that at all. But the text stands. And beloved, look at the reasoning. Notice what Paul does here. Look at verse 3 again. For, here's why, First, of the first reason you should obey those commands, or that the commands are there in the first place. We ourselves were once, the church was once foolish, 
disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Apparently, in the economy of Jesus Christ, whatever sins you struggled with in the past determine precisely who you must now be most merciful to in the present. Paul is saying we ourselves, he includes himself in this. We Christians also used to be the opposite of what he just commanded. Paul is saying we ourselves were foolish and disobedient. We ourselves were led astray. We ourselves were slaves to various passions and pleasures. We used to pass our days in malice and envy, hated and filled with hatred. Beloved, the fruit of a heart like that is disobedience to rulers and authorities. That's how it comes out. A lack of readiness to do good to others. It comes out in constant malice, constant envy, constant quarreling and arguing, and a lack of gentleness and perfect courtesy toward all people. In other words, only those who have no hope in Christ fill their days being angry at other people. Paul says we ourselves were once just like this. So the mark of worldliness in Titus is what? It's an obsession with the powers that be and a lack of kindness for others who apparently disagree with us. Well, why does he say what what happened to us? Why does he say we're once? What made us different now? Why is this what we were once like? Well, verse four, but we used to be like that, but. When the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of works done in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Back in 2.11, and here in 3.4, the same thing is what makes the difference in the life of believers. One thing has happened to us that makes Christians different. Just as the appearance of the grace of God in Jesus Christ trains us how to treat one another in the family of God in 2.11, the appearance of the goodness and loving kindness of God in Jesus Christ trains us how to treat the world in which we live in 3 verse 4. Paul points us to Jesus as our point of reference, whether we're in the church or in the world as God's people. No believer can obey one single command if one's eyes are not fixed on the appearance of Jesus Christ for us. Apparently, we'll get everything relevant to being a believer in our world by looking at Jesus, is what the text is saying. Listen to Paul's argument. At the appearance of God's goodness and loving kindness, he saved us. Remember, The appearance of grace in 2.11 did what? Brought salvation for all people. He's saying the same thing. What is Paul doing here? Why is he reminding them twice now of how they got saved when he's talking about their behavior? 
In chapter 2, it was to shape their attitude and posture towards one another. In chapter 3, the same thing is being used to shape their attitude and posture towards the world, including the authority structures that will marginalize, persecute, oppress, and possibly even kill them. And what is he reminding them of specifically is that their salvation did not come about by their good works. They have nothing of which to boast and look down on others for then. God did not save us because we changed. God does not save people based on what he sees inside of them as potential. He didn't save us because we were something that we stopped being in order to become something else. God does not save based on what people do or do not do. Paul is trying to tell them here, saved people have nothing to brag about. Nothing to hold over their unbelieving neighbors or enemies. What does that do? It completely levels the playing field to such a degree that apparently it should cause Christians to be the kindest, gentlest, most respectful, courteous people in the world, regardless of the situation they're living in, including situations brought about on them by the authorities that are over them. God did not save us according to our fitness for it, but according to his own mercy. How else would people like like the ones in verse 3 ever get saved in the first place? God is merciful to them. He just forgives them. He washes away all their sin and guilt, and then he gives them the gift of all his son's perfect righteousness so that they stand completely accepted at the feet of a holy God. And the first step of the method he uses to go about it is, he says, the washing of regeneration. The washing of regeneration. Bringing something to life that is dead. God saves sinners. God gives sinners who reject and don't believe in him. One day he gives them a new heart. He brings them to life so that they will believe in him. That's what happened to Paul on the Damascus Road. I'm going to go help imprison and murder Christians. No, you're not. I'm going to save you today. Regeneration. Paul is dead. God brings him to life. Thus, Paul believes. Ephesians 2, 4, and 5. Paul again. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ By grace you have been saved. He raises us from the dead, clears the dust from our eyes and our hearts, signified in our baptism, and then renews us by his Holy Spirit, whom he places in us as a seal to guarantee that we will one day obtain what has been promised to all who believe. So his Spirit abides in us both to keep us and to produce fruit that glorifies God, rather than the fruit of our flesh, which only glorified ourselves. And this amazing and comprehensive work is according to one thing, God's mercy. Mercy. An arrogant, angry, judgmental, self-righteous Christian obsessed with what is wrong in other people 
is then the most ludicrous oxymoron in the universe. Salvation is all him and who he is that saves all of us and all that we are. And he poured out his sealing and purifying Holy Spirit on us so richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that in verse 7, being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Beloved, did you see it? What is the catch-all phrase for what Paul is describing as the work of God in the heart of a sinner in verses 4 to 6? That's called justification by grace. Through the justifying work of God's grace in Jesus by which all who believe are made completely clean once and for all and completely righteous once and for all, sinners become heirs of eternal life, full stop. We move from no hope to all hope as sinners because God decided to be merciful to us rather than to give us what we deserve. That's the story. That's the song. We become heirs of heaven as a result of being justified by grace and nothing else. Now, what does this have to do with the way we treat other people, especially those in authority who seem to be nothing but a growing threat to us? Why is it that even in light of the increasing wickedness and evil and rebellion in our world, remember, this is written, the word of God is living, it's, it's going to get harder to do this over time because the world's going to get more evil. Authority is going to get more dangerous, more threatening, more oppressive. So what does all this talk of justification by grace have to do with the way we treat other people, especially those that are the biggest ongoing threat to us? The least concerned about our well-being, the most threatening and dangerous to us. Why is it that in light of that increasing evil and rebellion and wickedness, we are called in the midst of that, we are always consistently called, no matter what it is that we're experiencing, to be ready for every good work in order to serve them, right? to not speak evil of them in public or in private, and be gentle, what an odd command, and to show perfect courtesy, That's a tall order to all people. Beloved, Paul told us why we're being commanded these things way back in 1 Timothy 2, 3, and 4, and it shaped everything in the pastoral letters. God's heart is to save all kinds of people, including kings and those who are in authority. He saved us and not because of what we had done. So the saved are not those who earned it. That's not what the church is. The church is not the cream of the crop of humanity. That's not our light. That's not our salt. That's not what we are. That's not our testimony. That's not even our goal. We are evidences of God's mercy. We are here to show the world, look, God is merciful to sinners. That's what the church is here to show. God is merciful to people like us. God has not called his people to do good work so that the world will think highly of them or notice how much they've changed, but so we will point their eyes to Jesus. These are the works, apparently, that will do that, that will succeed 
in doing that. Look at verse 8. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, preacher, Paul is writing. So that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Verses 4 through 7 make up the last of the trustworthy sayings. Christians must commit to memory and have God right on their hearts that are in these pastoral letters. And Paul wants Titus and every preacher sins to insist on these things. My, if it's there, God willing, my insistence as a preacher on the message of justification by grace alone is not my personal hobby horse. It's a command from God himself to which I am accountable Notice again the logic of verse 8. It's the same exact logic of chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Why does the preacher insist on the doctrine of justification by grace? That sinners are made right with God, all by His mercy and grace, for both their cleansing and for their righteousness. So that those who have believed in God, that's the result of His mercy. God creates faith in us, and it has to. Because we're dead in trespasses and sins. So God has to create faith in us. It doesn't exist in us. In the flesh dwells no good thing. You wouldn't believe. You thought it was you. It wasn't you. God raised you from the dead, enabled you to believe. You did it. Why? So that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. Insist on this doctrine so the people saved by it would devote themselves, be careful to do these good works. The believer's devotion to good works that apparently reflect God's mercy and in so doing serves both their neighbors and their enemies. In the Bible, that's the result of a preacher's insistence on the doctrine of justification by grace. If the main diet of preaching and teaching we hear is not focused on the doctrine of justification by grace, we will not be careful to devote ourselves to good works. We'll grow increasingly strategic about finding ways around the works God has actually called His people to. That's why Christians tend to make up so many rules and commands that aren't in Scripture. They can't obey the ones that are. They don't want to. You read, be submissive to rulers and authorities. No, no, no. I'm not going to make Christianity about that. I'm going to make Christianity about what movies you watch and what you eat or drink. and what. That's what Christianity is going to be about. Because I'm not doing that. If we aren't hearing the Bible saying, mercy, 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 grace, 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 we won't have either. That's what the Bible's saying. Christian people are grown, brought to life, affected by a word. The word of God. The doctrine of justification by grace, the message of the gospel. That's what grows God's people. Be submissive to rulers and authorities. Do you watch the news? Are you serious, Paul? And we start picking out their sinfulness as reasons not to have to submit to these texts. Instead of reasons, when you, when you see the wickedness and the evil of other people, those are reasons that they need the mercy and grace of Jesus so badly. They're not reasons for you to get angry. 
Their beef is with God. You're his ambassador. God has called us to these works to make his name known. We don't need to make up our own. He doesn't need us on any crusade, but the proclamation of his mercy. Good works that glorify God are the direct result of justification. Because to the degree that we insist on the appearance of God's mercy in Christ and the fact that we are justified by his grace, people will be careful to do good works. That's what the Bible says. The more we insist on grace, the more careful about works people become. Why is the church not more careful about good works then? Because the preacher is not careful about what he insists on. What he makes the main focus of his preaching and his teaching. And again, walk through a Christian bookstore if there are any left that aren't online. It's, it's behavior, 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 commitment, 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 works, works, works. That, that's all it is. As, as though the grace is assumed. What you insist on is the effect. No, no, no. What you insist on is the grace. The Holy Spirit will focus on the effect. No counting, no measuring. God will do it. Insist on grace against all our better judgment and wisdom, of course. If it is not the message of grace, it dilutes the works we're called to do. If you believe in good works, you won't do them. If you believe in God and His mercy, you'll be devoted to them. Beloved, our fitness for good works is related directly to the fact that we're already heirs of eternal life. That hope is ours. We have it. We're set free from needing anyone's approval, needing anyone's stuff, needing anyone's position. We're free from all that. We're children of God. We're joint heirs with Jesus Christ. We can love and serve even the worst enemy until the sun goes down. We're free. He's that good. Verse 9, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. This would be all that preaching and teaching and talking that does not insist on justification by grace as its center. Verse 9, that command is present in all three letters of the pastorals in one form or another. Beloved, these things, the things in verse 9, cannot be tolerated. They cannot be given a home in the hearts and the minds and the souls of God's people. The obvious implication of a text like that is that we must not be able to stray too far from what is written in any given text. Going beyond what is written is divisive. It's dangerous. It doesn't take us very long in our pontificating and self-made theories before we're actually going against the grain and purpose of Scripture, even if that's not what we set out to do. The speculation that comes from wrangling over the law and well, you should keep this and do this and do that and behavior and rules and rituals and traditions or things that aren't as clear as other things that isn't good, beloved, foolish controversies, he calls them, ones that accomplish nothing. Anything is foolish in the church to fight over if it isn't related to the mission. Genealogies, that's a particularly Jewish issue they were dealing with about how they looked at Old Testament history and all these things. 
But dissensions, dissensions, so many. Could you imagine just if we actually handled the people who cause infighting and division and discord the way the Bible tells us to handle them instead of just trying to always coddle it, how much more enjoyable and freeing being part of the church would be. Do you know why we avoid such things? Because they are unprofitable and worthless, as opposed to being excellent and profitable, he just said. Which is what God wants his people to feast on. The message of verses 4 through 7. Focus on that. If it doesn't point us to Christ, the church doesn't need it. Strip it down to bare bones where all there is is a message and it will thrive. Will we believe God though? Will we pursue those things which make for peace and will actually help us in what may be very difficult days to come? Or will we just keep insisting on business as usual, right? Verses 10 through 11. As for a person who stirs up division... Because that's what you do by not avoiding verse 9. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. Why so serious? Because... People that practice what is described in verse 9 distract us from both the message God wants us to hear and the works He wants us to do. We are to be careful to be devoted to good works that reveal God's mercy to sinners. Not careful to maintain our traditions and our personal preferences and our sacred cows. What is more likely to demonstrate God's mercy? That's the question the church should be asking when it makes decisions. When did people get poll? This is what I want. Who cares what you want or expect? It's the church of Jesus Christ. Back off. You hear what Paul is saying. Nobody owns this. You're not buying shares when we give. We have received mercy in this place. We know where it's found. There's mercy for sinners. We know where it's found. We're in desperate need of it. The world is in desperate need of it. It's in shockingly short supply. So when a person insists on, over time, that which is unprofitable and worthless, when it's set against the backdrop of the message of grace... That's what determines something's worth in the church. When people insist on distracting people from the message of God's grace by endlessly chasing rabbit holes of lesser things and doctrines, what do we do? We warn them once, twice to be exact. Two times. Two. And then the church has nothing more to do with them. How serious is God about this message in his church? Two times? 
two warnings? You got to stop that? You can't be like this anymore? Twice? And then gone? When was the last time a church did that? Removed a person for unrepentant sin. That's what, that's what that is. It's the only sin a person can be removed from a church for. Being unrepentant about their sin. When was the last time we did that? Think. We don't do that. Hardly any churches do that anymore. We're just filled with tumors. Dying. Nobody's doing anything. They aren't acting. Why would you remove them? Because they aren't acting like they're a part of it. People that are a part of it are obsessed with this message of mercy. They're warped and sinful, Paul says. And again, you've got to remember who he's describing. He's not describing the degenerates among them. Right? Paul assumes that legalistic, speculative, divisive people are actually filled with sin. No matter how pious and concerned for God they appear on the outside. And he says they're self-condemned. Their own words condemn them. Nobody lives up to the standard they tell you you're supposed to follow. Don't be fooled by people's piety. They're not righteous enough to meet their own standards, regardless of what they believe about themselves. I guarantee you, when a person focuses on the one or two rules they do follow, you can rest assured there's a million behind them they don't follow. That's why they're emphasizing their behavior and not God's mercy. Who cares about your behavior? Who cares about mine? That's not what saves people. What will these works do? These works will show that you've been saved by something. Somebody has helped you. Somebody has been so merciful to you, they've given you hope. That's why we're commanded to do these things. It's very specific. Very straightforward. Folks like these have decided to reject grace. So grace and not grace cannot coexist, beloved. They cannot coexist. There's a gospel. There's a mission. We we don't need to figure out every single thing. And we don't have time for nonsense, apparently. Verse 12. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. Those two men are probably who brought Paul's letter to Titus in the first place. They're still there. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. So notice that. Don't devote yourselves to good works so that you will be saved, so that you will prove something, so that you will help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. How we read verse 14 tells us whether or not we've understood Paul's letter. How do they learn to do verse 8, which is reiterated here in verse 14? How do God's people learn how to be devoted to good works so that there are people at the ready to meet urgent needs? Because those will be everywhere. How do God's people become fruitful on God's terms? 
we don't get to decide whether or not we're being fruitful based on what we've deemed to be the fruit. How do people become fruitful on God's terms is the question. How do we help each other? How do we help this world, which is the context in chapter 3? The one giving us the word of God, the place from which we get our main diet of the truth, must be insisting on the fact all the time that we're made right with God, we're justified by grace and by grace alone. It is counterintuitive, no question. It's counterintuitive that we become fruitful. We learn to devote ourselves to works as a result of grace. But grace is the message of the gospel, and the gospel has power. God's mercy for the world is filled with a power to save his people and to mark them as his people. We learn in letters like Titus. Believer, you're accepted right now in the beloved. You're accepted. You're welcome here. Unbeliever, you're welcome here. Among the rest of us sinners, you're welcome here. Around the feet of Jesus, this message is for you. And I know it is because it's for people like me. This is the message that does all the work, beloved. The message of mercy. Insisting on the excellent and profitable message that all who believe are justified completely by God's grace is how we become and remain a fruitful people. Do you truly want to bear fruit as God's child? What child of God doesn't? Of course the children of God want to bear fruit and glorify Him. Then we must be more committed to what we hear than to what we do. To what we listen to more than what we perform. That's the way of grace. For the word of God stands. By the preacher's insistence on grace, God's people become and remain fruitful. One word grows God's people and it isn't mine. It's his Our world right now is filled with cases of urgent need. It's just filled with it. I mean, we, I, I, we forget sometimes, it's easy to do, that the ones that are so rebellious and so out of control are, yeah, they're lost. They're lost. I, I had a friend, we're still friends, um, but I used to get so mad at him because no matter what somebody on the TV or something or some actor or singer or politician was doing, you know, you'd say, man, I, I can't stand them. I, I, Phil would just say, ah, they, they just need the Lord. They just need Jesus. And I would get so mad. But like, yeah, but there's more. No, there's, there's not more. That's it. That's it. People are deceived. They don't know they're deceived because they're deceived. Right? That's how, that's how we want to see unbelievers. It, it's not a contest. Right? We're not fighting them for territory. Never forget that. Jesus has already overcome the world. We've already won. Judgment is coming. We're on a rescue mission. That's, that's why we're here. Period. You muddy that, you muddy everything. 
we have the truth. We know God's heart. He, he told it to us. His heart for them is that they'd be saved. Not condemned. You know, right? We want them to be condemned. We can't wait for sinners to get theirs. How did that happen? How did that happen? This is the purpose of the church. Making that message. That his grace appeared. His goodness and loving kindness have appeared. The purpose of the church is making that message. God's saving desire for sinners. To be reconciled to him. Known to the whole world. To all kinds of people. Every kind of people. And I, I, I don't know what did it. I'm not immune from it. I just can't help but wonder why we, generally speaking, are so consistently unmerciful to lost people. Towards those we presume to be our enemies. What happened? I have trouble sometimes um, closing a sermon down, like bringing it to the end. And that's even more so the case when it's like a whole series. It's the end of a series, um, like like we are this morning. I, I don't know why um, certain things that move me have such a, a weird or a lasting effect on me. I don't understand that sometimes. But several years ago... Um, on a, there's a group I really like called Beautiful Eulogy uh, Christian Group. That, uh, they had a mix on this album called Blessed Are the Merciful, which is by a pastor named Art Azurdia. And uh, it moved me then so much. It moves me now every time I hear it. It moves me more now, though, when I listen to it, because, for one thing, this man's preaching ministry was just instrumental in my life for a few years. It was, it was very important, very helpful to me. It was so powerful. I've heard few guys preach like that, you know. It's had such a profound and lasting effect on me. He's probably in his early to mid-60s now. Well, just a few years ago, like two or three years ago, he had to step down from pastoral ministry altogether because he was having an affair. And look, I was devastated when I heard that. Not because like it was against me, it had something to do with me. I don't, I don't mean that. But I mean, I, I don't understand that. I don't understand how he did that, right? I was, I was just shocked by it. But then as I reflect on him and where he might be now, I don't know him. I never met him, talked to him, anything like that. He was in Oregon. I, I, when I think of him, I remember these words from that mix, from that song. And I want to close with them today. Because they're extremely appropriate. Because these three letters have made the central truth about Christianity crystal clear. And we must hear them. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. So these words are for Art 
Azurdia, for his betrayed wife, for his devastated church, and they're for me, and they're for my wife, and they're for my kids, and they're for my church, they're for you. And if I could close out the pastorals perfectly, these three letters for the church to know who she is and what she's about until we go home, you know, or Jesus comes back for us, I guess it would be with words like these, the words of a sinner who was probably sinning when he wrote them, named Artaxerdia. For who else could so write? Words like these. Are you merciful? Why? Because Jesus healed the sick. Because Jesus fed the multitudes. Because Jesus gave legs to the crippled. Because Jesus granted sight to the blind. Because Jesus opened the ears of the deaf. Because Jesus found prostitutes and tax collectors and drew them into the sphere of his love. Because Jesus touched the untouchable and loved the unlovable and forgave the unforgivable and welcomed the undesirable. Because Jesus even now saves the otherwise unsavable. Why? Because they deserve it. When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done in righteousness, not because we met him halfway. Not because we took the proper steps forward and in good faith have elevated ourselves to the place of the deserving poor, but according to his mercy. We are here because Jesus Christ didn't say with cold indifference, give them what they deserve. They brought it on themselves. Jesus Christ is the mercy of God. And seeing us in our misery and need, he doesn't just feel for us. He takes the necessary action to relieve our distress. He leaves the eternal glory of heaven and the perfect fellowship of the Trinity. He condescends to us, lives among us, suffers like us, dies for us. Do you understand this? Have you experienced this? How then is it possible to experience it and not display it? It isn't possible. You haven't experienced it if you don't display it. The evidence of God's mercy in your life isn't determined by how much theology you know, by how many books you read, but by your active goodness to people in misery and in need. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Now, we cannot become merciful by trying or by feeling bad enough about being un. Merciful. We must be showered with mercy ourselves. We must experience it in the message of the gospel. We must hear this message that he will be merciful to us no matter what we've done or what we are again and again and again and again and again. And then one more time. All that we must be, he has been, is, and ever will be for us. Look to him. Again, 
That's the calling of the text today. It is not go out and do this. It is look to him and his mercy. When was the last time the gospel sounded sweet to you? You know, instead of something we've just gotten used to, if it makes us feel anything at all now when we hear it. Lately, it sounds really sweet to sinful ears like mine. But that's why I'm a preacher. That's why I exist. But more importantly, it is why the church exists. Jesus Christ is the grace and the mercy of God. And we will insist on it or we will die. So let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life this morning, tomorrow, Wednesday, Jesus saves. Jesus saves people. That's what he does. And he will save you. Guaranteed. Let's pray. Father, you saved us according to your mercy. You justified us by your grace. You sanctify us by your spirit. You made us your own 2,000 years ago and enacted the promise on us when we believed. So, Father, we, your people in Moundsville, look to you. You know where this place is. You know every single person that lives here. Right now, you are aware of every home, every man, every woman, every boy, every girl, every baby. You're aware of every single one of them. You know their names. You know their stories. You know their sins. And you sent Jesus to rescue them. You drew him back to your right hand where he reigns, and you sent us here to tell them that. But, Lord, we won't do that. Unless we realize that that's precisely what you've done for us. We thank you for the pastoral letters. We thank you for revealing your heart to us and your purpose, your will for the message and structure and behavior of your people. Lord, make us faithful to you. May we insist on those things that you deem the priority and nothing else. We ask and pray that you would watch over your people as they go. Watch over those that don't know you yet if they're here as they go. Or as they listen later, take us home by your grace. We ask and pray these things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.